Welcome to Creekside, everybody. How is everybody? Everybody good? Yeah. We're so glad that you're here. We want you just to pay real quick attention to a special announcement. Clark, is that you? Oh, hey. What's wrong? I, I miss all my friends at VBS. Well, you caught us at just the right time, Clark, because all our friends from VBS are going to come sing with us. Up here? Up here, right now. Right now? I'm uh, going to go sit over there and watch. All right, all the kids can walk up to the front. tell you what, all week those kids taught us really how to get excited about worship. The last night, they, uh, after, after VBS was all over and um, they had fun taping uh, Clark and Alexis to the wall, um, this was amazing. They, uh, they raised some money um, all week to, uh, to give money so that kids in Haiti could go to school and they ra- raised $806 in a week. This is kids. It is nuts. And the, 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 crazier, the crazier thing is that there was a competition between the guys and the girls, and they brought in the exact same amount. I mean, tied. And so they both got to tape uh, Alexis and Clark up on the wall there, which didn't last very long. But after that, um, they all came up on stage, and they would have stayed here for hours and just sung those songs. And worshiped. They're like, another one, another one, another one. And then the parents started to get mad, and we had to send them home. But anyway, we're so glad that you're here. Our mission statement here is leading people everywhere to a devoted relationship with Jesus. And kind of the phrase we used in 2016 to do that on an individual basis is occupy your street. And uh, I love it because this last week was a great example of how our kids, we teach our kids to um, be out in the world and love on people. And your street is not just where you live. It's everywhere you go on a daily basis. Bring the love of Jesus uh, to those places. And we saw kids, they come the first night, and the next night they bring one friend, the next night they bring two friends, the next night they bring three friends, whatever it was. But um, it was just awesome to watch our kids occupy their streets. And so that's something that we as parents can be intentional about teaching our kids at home how to occupy their street and just how to love on everyone that they run into. And so uh, we're going to continue to worship together. Um, our offering is going to come around. Um, if, you're, if you're a guest, you can just let that pass. You are our guest. Um, but uh, let's pray. And we believe that God wants us to give with a joyful heart whatever he leads us to give. So this is not under obligation. Um, we're going to worship together. And in these moments, um, as we're singing, as we're praying here, I want you just to come before the king of the universe. Um, even if it's been a long time it, before you, since you've prayed. Um, or if you've never prayed. Um, This is just a time to be in his presence. He says where two or three are gathered in his name, he is there. So let's just be with with God for a moment. God, uh, we want to proclaim the name of Jesus. We want to make the name of Jesus great. Um, And so, God, right now, I just pray that you would find us giving with joyful hearts. Um, God, you have provided everything that we have. Um, We want to give back to you. I 
pray as we worship that you would just, uh, that you, as you meet us where we are, God, that you would heal our broken hearts, um, that we would be changed in your presence um, by the Holy Spirit, by the blood of Jesus. Um, so we want to worship you for who you are. I pray that we would get a glimpse of, of that this morning. Um, God, we need you and we love you in Jesus' name. Good morning and welcome to Creekside again. And our regular speakers, Nick and Kyle, are heading up to Iowa Bible Camp this week uh, for a busy week of ministry. Kyle's uh, teaching the high school kids and Nick leading the worship this week. And so I'm privileged to have the opportunity to step in and uh, preach the word today. And I just ask that you, we pray for their ministry and for the camp week this week. Uh, it can be a great week for these kids to grow spiritually uh, have a lot of fun, and we also need to pray for their safety. I can think back to being a camper myself and some of the things that happened occasionally. Uh, we should pray for their safety, and so I just want to do that before we start the sermon this morning. Just pray for these children. Our Heavenly Father, we just thank you for Iowa Bible Camp and other camps going on this summer. We just pray that as our kids go there this week that uh, you would be with them. You would be with the counselors and the teachers and music leaders and that your Holy Spirit would be moving through the whole time of ministry to help kids grow in their faith, uh, maybe for some to come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior for the first time. And we do pray for their safety, uh, that we just commit them into your hands in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm usually up here giving some kind of missions announcement, and so I just want to give you a brief update on the last missions offering that we took. It was our best one ever. Um, we were able to send $400 to a few different missionaries, as well as $1,600 to that Haven Hope Hospital project in Africa, which I mentioned at the time there was matching funds for. So really, our $1,600 is now $3,200 to help build that hospital in Nigeria. So praise the Lord for that. Um, just like, I just wanted to share that with you guys. I'm sure you're interested in knowing how that came out. Uh, we're continuing in our series in Matthew chapters 5 to 7, the Sermon on the Mount, one of Jesus' most famous sermons, and we're going to look at Matthew 7 today. First, I just want to briefly recap some of the great teaching we've had in the series so far. And uh, on the slide here, you can see a whole bunch of different topics that we've been on lately, from godly character to our impact on the world like salt and light, what true righteousness looks like. Uh, remember how Jesus talked about heart attitudes, about anger and lust, how God looks at our heart attitudes and not just the external acts we do. Um, remember Jesus talked about adultery of the heart when a man lusts at a woman or just because someone doesn't murder, they might still have anger in their heart and sin against God. God always looks at the heart. Then we've also heard from Jesus on the subject of marriage and divorce and saw how seriously God views the marriage covenant. And we saw how our word should be true. We don't swear and make promises and oaths. We simply say yes or no and let our word be true. We saw how to treat our enemies. Uh, sometimes in the world it seems like evil and, and the enemy is getting the upper hand, but we learn from this to, with humility, depend on God's justice. We've seen the comparison between external religious acts of good works, prayer, fasting, versus what Jesus called for, just doing it to please God, not to be seen by others. We've heard from our Lord on investing the best of our time and resources for his kingdom above earthly pleasures. And now we come to chapter 7, and the first 
12 verses of chapter 7 speak about human relationships. The section on human relationships has a key verse, one you're probably familiar with, called the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Verse 12, do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. This is the essence of all that is taught in the law and the prophets. And it's helpful if we look at this section through the lens of that one verse. Keep in mind that verse as we, as we look at the scripture. And there's two parts in this section. Verses 1 through 6 is kind of the, the negative aspect of it. You could call it the golden rule gone wrong. And the second half, verses 7 to 12, you might call the golden rule gone right. We're going to look at the first half of that this week, and then next week someone else will preach on that second part. Well, there have been many, many books written about human relationships, uh, thousands of words, thousands of chapters, and book after book about human relationships. But what I find pretty amazing is that in 12 verses here, Jesus does a pretty good job of summing up what's important about human relationships. Let's start here in chapter 7, verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your own eye. This starts out with one of the most famous verses in the Bible that the, lo- the world loves to quote, right, about Christianity. Judge not that you not be judged. The skeptics out there, the cynics, uh, the non-believers, the atheists love to quote, judge not that you not be judged to us as a church. So I want to talk about what it means to judge not that you not be judged. Because the critics out there are looking at the church and they'll use this verse to try to discredit Christianity. They say we're judgmental about the sins of everyone else but not paying attention to our own sins, that we're hypocrites, that we do the same things, that our lives are no better than theirs that we're just wearing that mask of godliness that Nick talked about on a previous week. Now, sometimes it's deserved. Unfortunately, there have been some who have claimed to represent the church and speak in God's name against sin and evil in the world, and they fall to sin of their own. I think back to the situation this past year, uh, tragically, with Josh Duggar, uh, who is from the popular show 19 Kids and Counting, the oldest of those 19 kids. can't imagine a family that large. I've got four of my own. But he's the oldest of those 19 kids. He was raised in a Christian home, saved his first kiss for his wedding day, was active in conservative politics, uh, assisting the campaigns of Mike Huckabee and Rex Santorum, active with an organization called the Family Research Council. Was a, he was a strong advocate against abortion, uh, divorce, and gay marriage. But we learned last year that uh, through a data breach that came out, it's interesting how sins find you out, that uh, his life was a sham. Uh, it was, I don't even want to speak of all the details of it, but... He was leading quite a life of immorality. Well, the world sees that, and they just unleashed a torrent of hateful rhetoric towards him, his family, and to the church at large. The Wikipedia says that Duggar's publicity woes were named one of the 10 big scandals of 2015 by USA Today, while the Washington Post listed Duggar as one of the 15 people the internet hated most in 2015. And you know, the whole thing is just sad. It's sad for Josh, it's sad for his wife, it's sad for the other woman involved, it's sad for his family, And it's sad for the church and Christianity as a whole to have that kind of thing happen. But what the world is really doing here is using this situation and others like them and a verse like, judge not lest you be judged, 
as a pass for their wickedness. They think that they're clever when they quote this verse as a trump card, judge not lest you be judged. So I want to talk first what judge not isn't. It isn't ignoring sin and evil. When these things happen, and they do unfortunately happen in a fallen world, we still call it sin. We call it evil too. We're, we're never going to be perfect this side of glory because Jesus is the only one who lived a perfect life. Our faith is founded on him, on his righteousness, on his light and love and life, not on any Christian leader in this world today. And as Christians in this ungodly world, we must do our best to be discerning, to call sin, sin, to call evil, evil. Whether it happens to come from our own ranks in Christianity, tragically, or from the culture around us. We can't just sit back while our culture sinks to new low after low and still be faithful to be the salt and light of the world, as Jesus called us to be. Now, I remember reading a book um, back in fifth grade called There's a Boy in the Girl's Bathroom. And it's true. There's a book called that. I read it. It was just sort of a funny title for what really happened in the story. But today, that's really happening. Well, should we just say nothing about it? Should we say nothing about the way things are in our culture and the way people live our lives? Can we still be salt in the light and be quiet? Well, the unbeliever would say, why should it matter to you? And so I just want to talk about why should it matter to us? There's a couple perspectives on this. One would be that we really don't need a past judgment on non-believers. They're outside the church. They don't belong to God. They don't have a desire to follow his will and are really just exercising their job description as unbelievers, they sin. Ultimately, we need to let God deal with them. But on the other hand, Jesus told us to be salt and light in the world. And as salt was a preservative in that day, we're to be the preservatives, morally speaking, in our culture today. And we're to be the light. We are to shine forth the truth and the life of the gospel message that sinners need to repent and believe and turn to God for the forgiveness of their sins, which we see throughout the Bible. So we need to be discerning. We need to make judgments about sin and evil. It doesn't mean that we act in a condescending, demeaning way towards people who, like the Pharisees of Jesus' day did. We shouldn't do that. Besides what the Bible says about sinful behavior, it's common sense to call a lot of things in the world going on today evil. Today, we're very much like the Israelites when they wandered away from God in the Old Testament. The Bible says in Judges 21, 25, in those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. We're very much like that time today. That's what our culture is telling us today. Don't make judgments. Be inclusive. Be diverse. Everyone can live their lives however they want without any repercussions. You mind your business. I'll mind mine. How I live my life doesn't affect you. Have you heard that one? But remember, friends, God is still a holy God. And sin is still sin. And we must live our lives in a way that discerns between good and evil and seeks to influence society for righteousness and be God's witnesses to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Titus 2, 11 to 12 says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously and godly in the present age. So do not judge can't mean that we don't judge sin for what it is. We must judge, we must discern, we must be able to recognize and respond in a right way to sin and evil in our day. We must be able to make a right judgment 
of human sinful behavior in light of God's holiness. So it's not ignoring sin and evil. It's also not ignoring doctrine. What about judging in the church? And that's really the main audience of Jesus' message here, judgment in the church, when he says, judge not that you not be judged. And just as I clarified what judgment isn't in, judge not isn't in the world, it isn't indifference to sin and evil, rather a right judgment of human sinful behavior in light of God's holiness. I also want to clarify what judge not doesn't mean in the church. It doesn't mean that we don't make judgments about doctrine, about truth and error. We need to be discerning about truth and error. Some churches have a policy of not making judgments about doctrines that could potentially offend someone or divide believers from one another. Some won't even say the word sin so as not to make someone feel uncomfortable. And you see some of these churches grow to great numbers. I mean, if you don't draw the line anywhere or very much, you'll appeal to a lot of people. But is that right? 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17 gives us God's view on all of his word. He says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. In 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Be diligent to present yourself to approve to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, the apostle says, But test everything that is said. Hold on to what is good. And so God has given us his words to live by, and his words teach us about who he is, what he has done, what his expectations and design for the church are and for our lives. And these are teachings, doctrines, that are very clear, teachings that we need to be in unity on to be even a part of the faith. There are some doctrines that we have to discern between truth and error on just to be a part of the true church of God. I think of doctrines like that the Bible is the God-inspired, inerrant word of God that is without error, that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, that Jesus is the Son of God, fully God and fully man, that he died as a substitutionary sacrifice for sinners, that Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, that whoever believes in their heart that Jesus was resurrected from the dead and confesses him as Lord will be saved, and that Jesus will come to earth a second time one day. These are non-negotiables for the fellowship in the true church of Jesus Christ. We make judgments. We be discerning on truths, and there's many other truths we can make rightful judgments on and need to. And my challenge to us hearing this message this morning is to be men and women of conviction, of judgment on doctrinal matters. We must judge between truth and error. We need to be men and women who know the word, who love the word, who make judgments about the teachings of the word and can help others understand the word. You know, some might say it doesn't matter how much you know, that it's more important to do the work of God, to be involved in ministry, than to grow in the knowledge of the word. And I get the point. I agree it's important to live out our faith. James said with, uh, faith without works is dead. But let me tell you this. What you believe determines how you live your life. I think uh, just one uh, minor doctrine I presented last summer on, in our Creekside U on the pre-tribulational rapture, just thinking of how one doctrine like that can affect how the way you live your life. I think of how the Lord could return at any moment to catch up his church, to rapture up the church to heaven a pre-tribulational rapture before the coming of Christ. 
And if we really grasp that and understand that and believe that, that changes the way we live our life. It motivates us to holy living, knowing that the Lord could come at any time. We wouldn't want to be ashamed at his coming. It motivates us in our service and evangelism, knowing that the time is short, could be short, could be at any time. So we need to be discerning about truth and error. So we're told to judge rightly. Judge rightly is kind of the main idea here. When we hear judge not that you not be judged, that means uh, to not be judging in a critical, demeaning, criticizing sort of way. When we look at the whole of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 to 7, we see Jesus presenting true faith and godly practice against the backdrop of the hypocrisy and the externally religious system that the Pharisees were leading. You know, the Pharisees, they were the leaders who, they followed all of the requirements of the law of God to a T, right? But they didn't really apply it to the inward man, and that's what Jesus was calling out. These men, they, they were very prideful. They were, had an attitude of superiority towards others. They trusted in themselves. They put all their confidence in their own acts of self-righteousness. They set the standard. They were their own standard and they were the standard, and they, because of their pride, they looked down on everyone else who didn't live up to their expectations. And the, the hypocrisy of, his, of it is that they weren't willing to do the things that they were demanding of everybody else. Their motive wasn't to help people. They, they had a judgmental, condemning attitude towards others. And so you can see how to, out of that blackness of heart, that's the key thing, the heart. Out of that blackness of heart, they would have a judgmental negative, critical, demeaning, condescending attitude towards others. And that's what Jesus is condemning here when he says, judge not that you not be judged. That kind of attitude. And he's speaking to us through these words. Jesus is forbidding us from that kind of hypocritical judging. Judging others' thoughts and motives. It's the opposite of the Beatitudes in our first lesson in this series. Someone who is poor in spirit, who is meek, who mourns over their own sinfulness. Because only God can see the heart, and only he truly knows the thoughts and intentions and motives of the heart. And when we judge others in such a way, we are in a way setting ourselves up as God. That's why the sin of it is so bad. That won't bring about the golden rule. We're not superior to anyone. We should never consider ourselves so good that we can sit around and evaluate everybody else, criticizing other people. We always have something to work on ourselves. We never have it all together. We need to straighten out our lives first, even to have a little usefulness to help somebody else with their problem. Well, Jesus goes on to say, with the judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. You know, we have to be careful about our attitudes towards others in the church. We should never, never engage in gossip or critical language that is harmful towards others. If we do, we're told here that we will receive some kind of judgment or measure back to us. Well, how, how does that play out? What does that look like? I mean, first of all, we may face God's judgment in this life. You will be judged. It will be measured back to you. Might mean that God, who sees all, might bring fatherly discipline in our lives. Someone who is a criticizing gossip may face discipline from God in this life. If we're truly children of God, and then as a loving father, he may bring some form of punishment to correct us and guide us to live differently. Hebrews 12, 6-8 tells us this, For the Lord disciplines those he loves, 
and he punishes each one he accepts as a child. As you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Who ever heard of a child who was never disciplined by its father? If God doesn't discipline you as he does all of his children, it means that you are illegitimate and not really his children at all. So we should want to deal with our own sin, with God's help, or maybe with a fellow believer's help, before it gets to the point where the Lord might have to discipline us to guide us back to the right path as a loving father. Secondly, God might use natural consequences to deal with us. You know the saying, what goes around comes around. Gossip and critical attitudes and words have a way of coming back around to us like a boomerang and hit us hard when we least expect it. Have you ever experienced that? I mean, said something critical and out of line and you knew it and then somehow the person overheard it or found out about it and you had to face the consequences of that. I can think back to a couple of embarrassing times in my late teenage years when that happened, when I said something critical or demeaning of one of my peers and they happened to overhear it and how embarrassing that was, you know, yikes. Uh, but more recently, I can think of a situation with some believers outside of this church where some, some gossipy comments or assumptions uh, hurt another couple and it can damage people's relationships. We have to be careful with our words. They have such power to build up or to cut down and destroy. You know, James chapter 3 is a great chapter on the power of the tongue for both good and evil. And here's a few verses out of that section that highlight the teaching there. Verses 8 through 10. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Psalm 141 verse 3 would be a good verse to memorize where the psalmist says, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. That would be a good verse to commit to memory. Galatians 6, 7 also has the true axiom, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. That principle of sowing and reaping. Are we, are we sowing good things? Or are we sowing negative things towards others in our relationships? So we've seen now what godly judgment is and isn't. It isn't making right judgments. It is making right judgments about sin and rightly dividing the word of God the Bible. It certainly isn't a criticizing attitude and behavior towards fellow believers. We need to judge rightly. Now the second part of this message this morning is in verses 3 to 5. And they speak about dealing with our own sin and then helping another believer deal with their sin. Let me read those again. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. See, the problem the Pharisees had was that they would be very quick to point out the sin in other people's lives. They would be quick to condemn and judge others for their sin. And they thought as long as they didn't commit those sins externally, they were okay. But Jesus cuts right through that, and he did on many occasions. You look at Matthew 23, and it's a, cha it's a chapter full of strong language about uh, blasting these religious leaders for their hypocrisy. And Jesus told them outwardly they looked like righteous people, but inwardly, their hearts were filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. So we're called here to examine ourselves, 
to deal with our own sin, to see if there is any pride and hypocrisy before we help someone else out with theirs. And there's this imagery here of the speck and the plank. And uh, I wish I could say one of my creative kids drew this, but I borrowed it from somewhere else and maybe from a youthful adult. But it's kind of a comical image, isn't it? Picturing someone with a long two-by-four, the plank, the beam in their eye, trying to go over and help someone with the speck in their eye. And you can't even really get close enough to the person to even help them in this image. Some say the speck in their brother's eye is some small sin and that the plank is some great, egregious, huge sin. But actually, the speck is a real problem. It is a sin the brother is in and needs help with. We don't want to minimize that. And Jesus wants us to help the brother in sin because he goes on to say after we remove our plank to go and remove the speck in the brother's eye. Taking the speck out of the brother's eye is the right thing to do as long as we first get the log out of our own eye. The reason it is a plank or a beam or a log, whatever translation you have, is because we cannot help someone else with their sin until our own sin has been dealt with first. If we try to go help someone else and we haven't dealt with our own sin first, it's an offense to God to have that kind of hypocrisy, even more than it's an offense to God that the other brother's in sin even. That's why it's a plank. It places us in the role of God to be making that kind of judgment. We have to deal with our sin first. Secondly, we have to be a spiritual believer. I want to share a few verses in Galatians chapter 6 that tie right in with this. In Galatians 6, we read, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Notice how he says here that the people to be doing the restoring are those who are spiritual. You know, one danger of hearing this message on not judging is that we just stay out of other people's messes, that we're not willing to confront a sinning brother. But if we don't confront sin, the church is going to be corrupted. And if, when a fellow believer is overtaken or caught in any kind of sin, it says, it's not just the overtly scandalous kind of sins, but any kind of sin that's entangled someone. It says, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. It doesn't say we have to be perfect. That's not what it means. But the spiritual person is one who has confessed his sins to God, who is living, seeking to live in obedience to God, walking in the spirit. That's the spiritual man. That's who we're all to be, the spiritual man, seeking to be led by the Spirit of God. Galatians 5 exhorts us to walk in the Spirit and to be led by the Spirit, and that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And verse 25 says, If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. That's the kind of spiritual condition we all need to be in, and it's required before helping others with their sin. And we have a, our next coming series here, and it's a spoiler, just came decided this last week, is on the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, after this series is over, in the next nine weeks, we'll be on the fruit of the Spirit. Looking forward to it. It'll be a good series. So, you know, it would be great if all believers in the local church were always walking in the Spirit, right? But the reality is that we're not all continually walking in the Spirit, and we have problems. We get fleshy. Galatians 5.17 says that the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. 
Do you ever feel like that, that you're not doing the things that you wish in your walk with Christ? We're constantly in a battle. Believers in Jesus Christ, we've been completely forgiven of our sin, past, present, and future, but until we get to heaven, we still struggle with our sin, don't we? You can read the second half of Romans chapter 7 for a close account of the Apostle Paul's real battle with sin in his life. He didn't want to do the things he was doing in the flesh and sin, but at the end of it, he said, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord that he could have victory. So be a spiritual believer. Thirdly, restore gently. Notice that here in Galatians 6, it says that we're to restore in a spirit of gentleness. You know, a spiritual believer has a responsibility to restore the fellow believer struggling, caught in some sin. And we're told how we do that, what that looks like. You know, practically speaking, it means that we reach out to the person, bringing them back. Galatians 6.3 tells us that if, we're think, if we think we're too important to help someone, we're only fooling ourselves. We're not that important. We have to help them see their sin for what it is and give them truth from God's word and encouragement to get back on the right path. And we're to do so in a spirit of gentleness, humbly helping that person back to the right path. We, we don't come to the person with harsh condemnation. We gently give them the truth of God's word. It's not just our own words, but we point them to God's word. We can do that in our homes, too, and with our children. We, if we have a child who has a sinful attitude, we can do more than just teach them and correct them with our own words. We can point them to the truth of God's word, point them to a higher authority. That This is what God wants for you, and that's what we do in the church, too, in a spirit of gentleness. And when we're helping someone, we, we do it, the whole thing in prayer. That's very important that we are in prayer about the whole thing. And we help them be accountable. I don't know, sometimes it might just take a weekly check-in with the person saying, hey, how many times have you committed this sin this week? Just some level of accountability to help someone. And when we do that, it says we're bearing one another's burdens and fulfilling the law of Christ. Remember always that the goal is restoration. You know, it's not just to beat someone down and criticize them for their sin, but it's to restore them. And sometimes that takes time. That takes patience. It takes persistence. It takes effort. And why do we do it? We do it because Jesus Christ wants a holy church. It's his church, not ours. And his desire for his church is that it's a holy church. We need to take that seriously. You know, and sometimes we need to know our limits here. Uh, we're not professional counselors here. Some situations may also require professional Christian counselors to work through some very difficult situations. And we encourage that where necessary. Fourthly, we're given a warning in these verses here to be careful, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. The warning is about not being prideful about the situation with another person's sin, because we might fall into the same temptation ourselves. You know, someone sometimes might think, I would never do that. But then you see later on that they do just that. When you understand the Bible's teaching on total depravity, that means we're dead in our sins, as it says in Ephesians. That means that every part of us has been touched by sin, that the seed of all kinds of sin is in our heart from birth. doesn't mean we all commit every sin we could, but the potential is there. We need to be watchful over our own lives. Some people who have said, I would never do that, end up doing just that. We're not above sins common to man. Now, I think there would be some sins that I don't think I could ever be tempted by, just because they're so far out there for me, but 
even then I need to be careful. I need to be careful about the pride that might come into my heart about that kind of a sin or that situation or that that believer struggling with it, but I would never struggle with it. We need to be careful about pride. It's very important to put a guard over our heart because when temptations come our way, we need to be able to resist the evil one when that time comes. Let me say again, it's important to think through boundaries and set clear boundaries uh, before we face a challenge to cross one. I, I think one of the biggest areas that we need to face as men and women in the workplace today is to set boundaries in our relationships to the opposite sex. I mean, before we're married, we need to have clear, God-honoring boundaries so that we don't fall into fornication. But when we're married, we need to set up boundaries in our relationships with the opposite sex in all, in all spheres, but in the workplace too. Um, I shared an article about 10 years ago with a couple of friends in my work about boundaries with the opposite sex in the workplace. And there were two very different reactions from my two friends. Uh, one friend received it gladly and responded to me with how he seeks to set boundaries in those relationships. The other friend responded very defensively and was worried about why I had sent it. Well, it turns out some years later, fast forward here, the first friend is still happily married with four kids, and as you can imagine, the second, maybe, is, is, is divorced after cheating on his wife uh, with a woman he was on a project with. And it just brings out the importance of being careful, watching out for our own souls, our own hearts. We need to be, also need to be humble. I wish I could go tell this brother what you're doing is wrong, but he's very arrogant and belligerent. I wish I could help him, but we need to be humble to receive the correction. We've been talking about how our attitude is to be towards others and to be out there restoring gently and be that spiritual man restoring gently. But on the other side of things, we need to be humble to receive that kind of correction. Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. You know, it's not easy to hear corrective instruction and feedback from someone, but a true friend will not allow you to continue in sin. That would not be a loving thing. A faithful friend here inflicts the kind of wounds needed, the words of truth from the Bible about a situation that may be painful to hear, but necessary for the acknowledgement of sin, the confession of sin, for repentance, and ultimately the restoration in their spiritual walk with God. We need to receive that admonishment well. King David was that kind of humble person. In Psalm 141, verse 5, he said, Let the righteous strike me, it shall be a kindness, and let him rebuke me, it shall be as excellent oil. Let my head not refuse it. He had a humble attitude towards correction, and we see that in his life. And lastly here, as we're kind of winding down, I uh, just want to encourage everyone as we're seeking to restore someone or help someone in some kind of sin to keep it in scope. And uh, I'm not going to preach a whole sermon on Matthew 18 here, but uh, the principle here on the next slide is that we keep it in scope. That the principle is that first we go privately, uh, you know, ideally, we, we just resolve the sin with God, right? But assuming that can't be resolved with God and it's affecting other people, it says go privately. That says one plus you. So the principle here is that we start it and try to keep it as small as possible when dealing with sin in someone's life. And I've kind of drawn some circles here to kind of expand the scope depending on the response of the sinning brother as necessary. First, we go privately and point out the offense. And if the other person listens and fully confesses it, it says, you have won that person back. That's really what we hope for. The sins are confessed and resolved on a one-to-one -one basis. 
But it says if you're unsuccessful, maybe that person who has sinned is not really realizing the fullness and impact their sin has had on that person or on a wider group of people, even the church. Maybe they're not willing to do everything it takes to make it right. And so the spiritual believer then takes one or two others and goes back again so that the account is confirmed by two or three witnesses, it says. And pick your help wisely. They must be spiritual too. But then if the person still refuses to listen, to fully remedy the situation, you take your case to the church. And that doesn't mean broadcast it out with a service announcement to everyone or gossip about it. It means take it to the church leadership. And, the, and then the leaders at that point offer their wisdom and advice and counsel and maybe a decision. And hopefully the situation is resolved at that point and it still stays fairly small in scope. But if the person is unwilling to listen, even then it says, then you, then you uh, cast them out of the church. And the reason, and that sounds kind of harsh, but the reason for that is that God desires a holy church. The purity of Christ's church is at stake. And we need to take that seriously. So to wrap it up here, judge rightly. We don't be judgmental, not critical of others, but we do discern between good and evil. We do discern between truth and error, but never that criticizing, condemning, pharisaical kind of attitude that Jesus was speaking about. And then helping a brother in sin, to deal with our own sin first, to remove that plank that's in our eye before we help someone else. To be that spiritual believer, one who's confessing the sin to God, walking in the Spirit, then restoring gently. We have an obligation to help someone, to restore them, and always in a spirit of gentleness. And to be careful, to watch out for ourselves in the pride and the sin in our lives. And to keep it in scope. Keep it in scope. Now as we wind down and continue our time of worship now with communion, Let's think about the one who is the rightful judge of all, the one who has the right to judge all of our sins, yet he was the one who willingly laid down his life and placed himself under the judgment of God. Not for any of his sins, he was perfect, but for our sins. That's a wonderful thing to think about. And I would invite you this morning, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that if you have some unconfessed sin, that you confess it before the Lord right now and then join us in taking communion. 1 Corinthians 11, 27 to 29 says, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. And, and notice what there that after we examine ourselves, we're told to eat and drink of the bread and of the cup. We don't just look at our sinful lives and say, I'm not going to take communion today, too sinful. But notice that the Lord says after we examine ourselves, then take and eat. That's the inclusive grace of the Lord there. And we take the bread and cup, which are symbols that remind us of the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when we think about that, when we think about how he bore the judgment and wrath of God, though he was the rightful judge of all, how can we act in a judgmental, criticizing attitude towards others we can't we can't if we keep that in mind so with that thought let me pray our heavenly father i just thank you and praise you that while you are the rightful judge of all you sent down your son the lord jesus in such a humble manner thank you for his teachings that help us to walk on the right path that help us to have a desire to get rid of the sin in our lives and not live a hypocritical life but to 
be spiritual and to be the one who's seeking to restore other believers gently and being careful for our own sin. And we thank you that he who is the rightful judge of all bore the wrath of God. It was so, such an unjust thing. He was the just bearing the sins of the world for the unjust. That's us. But we thank you for that. But because of that sacrifice, we can be made right with you. And that one day we will not face your wrath. We will not face your judgment because we will be found in the righteousness of Christ. We praise you for that and we take this, these symbols and gratefulness and worship of our Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.